I'm Carrie, your friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we're skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. everyone. Welcome to the show, Your Friend the Therapist. Today it is just me, Carrie. Happy New Year. It is 2024. And to start off this year, as I um, get the final two episodes of season one prepared for you all, I'm going to answer some of your questions. So a while ago, I had posted on social media and in my newsletter um, that I was opening up the platform for you to ask me whatever questions come to mind. Um, So here we go. I'm going to answer some of your questions. If you have follow-up questions or more questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or email. Um, Instagram is your friend, the therapist pod. Email is carrie at carriefillion.com. So the first question I'm going to answer, someone asked me, do the strategies that work for you inform how you approach your practice and continuing education? And the answer is 100% yes. So my interest, especially in somatic approaches to therapy, is very much influenced by what has been most supportive for me over the years and my own inner work, my own healing journey, if you will. My yoga practice specifically began before I ever even identified that I had mental health needs um, coming from a high control religious context from evangelical Christianity. I really didn't have a language for emotions. Um, And if I did understand emotions, it was that they're bad. Um, But I knew what pain in my body felt like. Um, So before I even recognized that my religious experiences were harmful, that I had words to identify my chronic illness, that I had words to identify trauma, um, I had my yoga practice. And yoga gave me a way to experience being safely in my body that I really hadn't had in that type of life. I started practicing yoga when I was a teenager, um, off and on. And it has continued. It's been probably the most consistent thing in my life um, since then. Uh, Because yoga was such an important way for me to connect with my body when high control religion was teaching me to disconnect from my body, I've always had an interest in sharing the gift of somatic practices with my clients. This is 100% what influenced my decision to pursue training in trauma-centered, trauma-sensitive yoga, which is the evidence-based modality for treating complex trauma and treatment-resistant PTSD that I utilize both in my therapy practice and in my um, facilitation as a yoga teacher. I also really love the modalities of internal family systems or IFS and narrative therapy because they really align with my own values Um, and my sort of core belief as a therapist and as a person is that we are inherently good and we have so much wisdom within us that everything we need to change is within ourselves. Um, So internal family systems, there's a few different 
ways that I use this. I'm trained specifically in something called integrative somatic parts work, which integrates internal family systems to support folks in healing underlying trauma and pain. IFS is grounded on the idea that our inner world consists of parts or subpersonalities and that together these parts form an inner system. In an attempt to protect us from pain, from time to time, our various parts conflict with each other and act in unhelpful and dysfunctional ways. Our inner parts are created and affected by our life experiences. They show up as tension or unease in your body. Uh, at least they certainly did for me in my experience of pain and chronic illness. Um, and these parts also show up in thinking patterns, behavior, and the way we relate to ourselves and others. Integrative somatic parts work um, or somatic IFS utilizes practices that give you a felt connection to your core self, which is inherently good, helping to heal and integrate mind and body. This integration can lead to an increased sense of wholeness and compassion for yourself and others. This is one form of therapy that I personally have sought out for myself in my own therapy journey because it has resonated so deeply with me. And in fact, one of the books that I often recommend for people recovering from religious harm is an IFS book that is not about religion. Um, it is No Bad Parts by Dick Schwartz, who is the I guess founder of IFS. There's so much more I could say about IFS. Um, but I won't here, but I am happy to chat about IFS with folks, the good, the bad, the ugly, um, but no bad parts really um, was really influential for me. This idea that there are no bad parts of me because Christianity, at least the version that I um, was raised in, really taught me that there are a lot of bad parts. There are a lot of bad things about you. In fact, you are inherently bad. Um, so this was a total kind of flipping the script and has been really healing for me. So I love to share this practice with my clients. So I also mentioned narrative therapy is something that I um, really resonate with. Narrative therapy is based on the belief that our experience of reality is a social construction of various stories. However, we often tell ourselves thin stories that do not express the fullness of who we are, or we've learned to embody thin and disempowering stories told to us about family, society, and oppressive systems. By taking ownership of your own story and recognizing the complexity of your own life narrative, you can begin to find your power and voice and overcome challenges. So I've always really loved stories, reading and writing. So this form of therapy makes a lot of sense to me that our lives are stories. Um, I, I say on the front page of my website that our lives are stories and our bodies are the pages on which those stories are written. Um, so this version of therapy, again, is really strength focused and really focused on that the stories we tell ourselves really help to create our reality and our perceptions, um, which I think can be really powerful. So I don't do a lot of prescriptive therapy. I don't do a lot of sort of like you need to change your thoughts or change your behaviors. We really focus on understanding thoughts, understanding emotions, understanding your own inner wisdom and why there might be challenges. So coming from a place of compassion. Um, another form of therapy that is newer to me that I'm still in the process of exploring is ecotherapy, also known as nature therapy or green therapy. 
And this is based on the idea that people are connected to and impacted by the natural environment. A growing body of research highlights the positive benefits of connecting with nature, which many of us have the experience of, like, we don't necessarily need the research to to show us or to um, validate the experience that being in nature and having experiences with nature is healing. But research is confirming what many of us have sort of known in our own experience. Ecotherapy as a practice stems from the belief that people are part of the web of life and that we as humans are not isolated or separate from our environment. Ecopsychology is informed by systems theory and provides individuals with an opportunity to explore their relationship with nature. So especially as a social worker, um, this is kind of getting into the weeds of of therapy, but I, I tend to be a little bit of a nerd about it. But as a social worker, we're really looking at systems um, and the natural world. Our environment is one of those systems that we influence and that influences us. We cannot separate ourselves from these systems around us. Um, nature and animals have always been really healing for me. Um, you know, probably everyone knows that I have a dog who's my little emotional support buddy. Um, she comes to my therapy session, to my office with me, um, meets with clients with me. Um, I think there's just something really powerful about the connection between nature and people and animals. Um, so that is something I'm really leaning into because of my own experience. Um, when I learn a new therapeutic modality or when I pursue different types of continuing ed, um, I think it's really important for me to try it for myself so I can understand what it's like to be the client. I think that doing my own inner work, and I think this is true for any therapist, that therapists need to be doing their own inner work in order to show up for their clients. And that is absolutely true for myself. I prioritize my own therapy, my own um, spiritual direction or spiritual companionship, really um, getting to know these different parts of myself so that I can show up really authentically and be available for my clients and the work that I do. So long-winded answer to that question, um, but hopefully that was helpful. Another question that I got um, is, is it reasonable to ask your therapist's religious background if you're coming in with religious trauma? So yes, first of all, the short answer is yes. You can, as you're interviewing a potential therapist, which first of all, I highly recommend that you really do interview a potential therapist. Therapy is a relationship and not every therapist, even though on paper they might look like a good fit, not everyone's going to feel like a good fit. So ask all the questions you want. There's no wrong question. There's no bad question. If they can't answer or, or don't want to answer, they will tell you, and that is up to them. Um, when I was looking for my current therapist, which is my fourth therapist, I was looking for someone who, first of all, knew how to work with religious trauma and who was not a practicing evangelical or practicing any other fundamentalist form of religion. That was really important for me to know in order to feel safe with that person. I think that this is really important for survivors of religious trauma because there are so many power imbalances present in high control religion. 
power imbalances, such as the difference in power between men and women. And that, you know, is way beyond just religion. That is cultural. Um, but the power imbalance of a pastor, a priest, leaders and their congregants, power between adults and children. And there is inherently a dynamic of power within the therapist-client relationship. So I think it's really important for clients to look for a therapist who is aware of this dynamic and is practicing and mindful and shifting that dynamic in whatever way possible. And you can even ask a therapist or potential therapist directly how they share power within the therapeutic relationship. And if they can't answer that, that might not be the right therapist for you. Um, I think it's also really important to look for a therapist who does not recreate the imbalance of power that you experienced in high control religion or in any other abusive relationship. Um, I recently was on an episode of the podcast, Am I a Bad Therapist? And I shared there a story of um, my own experience being a client in a very um, imbalanced relationship. So there's already an imbalance in power between therapist and client, and that imbalance was weaponized. Um, and so you can check out that podcast, Am I a Bad Therapist, to hear my story. But coming back to the question, can you ask about a therapist's religious background? Some therapists in the religious trauma fields are not comfortable sharing their current spiritual or religious beliefs, and that's really normal and perfectly reasonable boundary for them to set. Most people don't want to share, not because they want to be secretive, but because they want you to have the freedom to choose your own form of spirituality and what's authentic to you rather than doing what they're doing because you think that might be the right way to do it. Um, and typically people who are setting this boundary um, are especially aware of the power dynamics and don't want to bring in any form of coercion into the relationship. And I think that that can actually be very, very helpful, especially for those of us who have come from high control religion, because we're used to people telling us what to do. And it's really important to not fall back into that trap in a therapeutic context. In my experience, most religious trauma therapists are willing to talk about their religious background, even if they're not willing or um, excuse me, have a boundary around talking about where they're currently at spiritually, but most are willing to talk about their background. Um, even if they're not, you're allowed to ask questions. Um, it is our job as a therapist to navigate those questions and know how to answer them. And how a therapist approaches the hard questions um, will give you a lot of information about how they operate. Um, it's reasonable for us to keep certain things personal and private. That is totally fine in the same way that you're allowed to keep things personal and private, even in the therapeutic relationship. You get to decide in the same way that therapists get to decide. Um, for therapists who might not have experienced religious harm themselves, the reason it's so important for those of us who have experienced religious harm to ask about this is because we do not want to be coerced again. We do not want to think we're going into therapy only to end up in biblical counseling, which is not therapy. And I want to go on a little bit of a tangent. Um, the difference between biblical counseling and therapy. If you're not familiar with biblical counseling, it is according to Dr. Bob 
Kellerman, um, who is a biblical counselor. Um, I'm going to read a direct quote from him. It is, biblical counseling is Christ-centered, church-based, comprehensive, compassionate, and culturally informed, one another ministry that depends upon the Holy Spirit to relate God's word to suffering and sin by speaking and living God's truth in love to equip people to love God and one another. It cultivates conformity to Christ and communion with Christ and the body of Christ, leading to a community of one another disciple makers, end quote. And in this, um, the quote that I just read for you, he quotes Matthew 28, 18 <clears throat> through 20. Well, he references it. Um, and that verse says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So biblical counseling is proselytizing. It is not therapy. Um, a few more kind of definitions, just because I want to give the exact words of people who are practicing this um, so as not to sound jaded, although I am, um, because I, I grew up in a church that practiced biblical counseling and, and did not um, talk about therapy at any in any way. Um, so one, one more kind of quote about what biblical counseling is, according to Pastor Brad Bigney from Grace Fellowship Church. He writes, the goal in biblical counseling is to come alongside a person who is struggling and seek to apply the principles in God's word in such a way that the person responds in an obedient and godly manner to the problems that they are facing, to the glory of God and the person's own good, end quote. So I really want to emphasize this is not therapy. It is proselytizing. It has no place in the mental health space. This is a type of relationship that is incredibly attached to a specific outcome. It is designed to make disciples of all nations. That comes from that passage in Matthew that I just read. Um, therapy, in, ideally, is not attached to a specific outcome. So when someone comes into my office, I'm not trying to convert them to Christianity. I'm not trying to make them do certain things that I have learned or signs of obedience. Um, therapy is a form of treatment, evidence-based treatment aimed at relieving emotional distress and mental health problems. What is tricky about this definition is that biblical counselors would also say that this is their goal, that they're also trying to relieve emotional distress. However, their idea of what relieves emotional distress and mental health problems is limited to whatever the Bible says. And their idea of what is causing emotional distress is, is usually sin, um, which I just at baseline don't agree with. Um, so also, let's be clear, the Bible is not a therapeutic manual. So we should not even be using the Bible in this way. Um, psychotherapy can be practiced in a wide variety of ways, many of which are indeed evidence-based, meaning research has been done to validate that these treatments work in the way that they say they do. And psychotherapy should always be done by a licensed, accredited professional. 
Now, there are many different ways to approach healing and recovery that's not within a therapeutic or not not with a licensed therapist. And that's that's fine. There are so many different ways, and I'm not um, saying therapy is the only way that you can find healing or recovery. But just based on what I am familiar with, what I know, um, which is therapy, because I'm a therapist, but coaching, somatic work, like there's a lots of things that can be helpful in the process of recovery. Um, and some people may find support in the church. That can happen, and that's fine. But psychotherapy is different from biblical counseling in that the therapist is not aimed at imparting a particular worldview on a client, a worldview which teaches that people are born sinful and that the only way to healing and emotional relief is by obeying God. Therapists can support you in your religious journey or spiritual exploration. However, they should never tell you what to believe or impose a particular religious worldview on you. Biblical counseling is harmful because it is not trauma-informed. High-control religions, which are often the places where biblical counseling is encouraged and available, is often a source of adverse or traumatic experiences. Biblical counseling does not make space for the way that high-control religions can be harmful. In fact, it can contribute to them. So that's the end of my rant about biblical counseling uh, versus therapy, something I think about a lot and, and just wanted to name um, here and, and explore. So again, so much more could be said about that, but that is that's where I'll pause that for now. So a few more questions. Um, someone asked me, what ways do you explore spirituality for yourself after religion? So I am I am a therapist who is a little bit more open to sharing kind of not necessarily what I believe, but kind of how I explore spirituality. So I am happy to answer this question. Um, and essentially, it has gone through many phases and iterations. And I think that the fluidity and expansiveness of that exploration is actually really helpful and healthy for me compared to the rigidity that I experienced in high control religion. Um, I recently started working with a spiritual director or um, a spiritual companion. Um, if you want to learn more about what a spiritual companion is, I highly recommend you go back and listen to my episode with Jessica Schaefer, where we talk about the difference between spiritual companionship and therapy, because they're not the same thing. Um, but working with a spiritual companion has allowed me to create space in my life to explore spiritual questions without the fear that I'm going to get it wrong or that there is one right or wrong way to view things. Um, so that's one way that I have been exploring spirituality. I think also really important for me is making space to connect with myself, whether that's through yoga, through journaling, through um, being out in nature. I really value going on trips by myself um, as a way of learning about myself connecting with myself, and it, it feels like a spiritual practice for me, um, connecting with nature, putting my phone away. Like spirituality, I have um, been learning, is not limited to what happens inside the walls of a church, that they do not get to gatekeep spirituality. Um, 
So it looks so many different ways, and it's, it's almost really hard for me to define. Uh, if you want to hear more about this, you can also check out my episode where I was on um, the podcast Hello Deconstructionist with Maggie. Um, I will link that episode and the episode with Jessica Schaefer in um, the show notes because I talk much more about these things on those episodes, and that may be helpful. Um, so moving on to some fun, well, I guess the next question is not fun. Um, <laughs> fun for me as someone who kind of nerds out about religion and trauma. But um, so another question is, if you feel that I, you're through the anger phase of deconstruction, this comes from someone who I've talked with a lot about uh, my own deconstruction journey and how I've, I've kind of like, feel like I'm uh, not as angry. Um, so they ask, if you feel that you're through the anger phase, how would you describe where you are now? And first of all, I want to say that the anger comes and goes. Um, I'm not as angry as I used to be, but but I have times where I'm angry. And I have learned to allow the anger to move a little bit more fluidly than I have in the past. I think that I am in a place right now where I'm just really curious. Um, I've really let myself feel the anger of everything that I experienced in the church and the ways that the church is still contributing to a lot of harm in the world. Um, but I am sort of leaning into curiosity. You know, what can spirituality look like outside of evangelical Christianity, outside of high control religion? Um, what can, what do other religions look like? How do other people find meaning and purpose? in the world? Um, what is it like to play? What is it like to engage in, in relationship? Um, so I think curiosity is really where I'm at now. And I, throughout my deconstruction process, I've, I think the anger was really important in, in helping me to build trust within myself. And now that that trust is feeling much stronger I am able to branch out a little bit more, feel out some different things, knowing that if, if something doesn't feel good or feel right, I can pull back. I can leave. I have that power. Um, so, yeah, curiosity is, is, I think, where I'm at right now. Um, someone else asked, what is your definition of wellness? That is what I ask at the beginning of every episode, at least in season one. And I think that wellness for me... Um, is I feel that I am well when these four elements are in balance in my life. And the four elements are my body, my emotions, my intellect, and my spirituality. And this concept comes from the work of Carla McLaren. Um, her book, The Language of Emotions, is, has been so influential for me. So I'll, I'll link that in the show notes too. Um, but I, I think in really broad strokes, I feel well when those four elements are in balance. Um, and a lot of the time, my intellectual part is kind of taking over. So really learning to settle that part down and experience my body, my emotions, my spirituality, and creating more balance between those four pillars. Um, but I, I will say that every single definition of wellness that has been shared on my podcast so far by my guests 
has really resonated with me and has really expanded my definition and my concept of what this means. Okay, so now to the fun questions. Um, what am I reading and watching to stay well? So I am a big reader and my pile of books is, is really, really tall. Um, I just finished the book Stumbling by Brandon Flannery, and he's going to be a guest on my podcast in February. Um, that was a really, really excellent memoir. He writes about the intersection of sexuality and faith. Um, it's a memoir about coming out of evangelicalism, and I've really been not reading as much uh, in the religious trauma space recently. But this book didn't hit me in the way that other books did in, in that it felt like a breath of fresh air. It didn't feel heavy. It didn't feel hard to read, although it is incredibly heavy at times and really um, insightful and, and tackling some really challenging topics. But I think I really appreciate how Brandon writes and writes in a really fun easy to read, fun to read way. Um, so that's stumbling. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, I've really been actually cutting back on watching TV. I, I recently canceled a bunch of my subscription services, just feeling pretty disillusioned, um, feeling like I've been noticing I'm very visually sensitive, so watching TV is often not soothing to me. It often creates more anxiety. That being said, I really enjoy Wes Anderson movies. You know, I'd, maybe that's really hipster, really like um, mainstream of me. I don't know. I don't know if other people are watching that. Let me know if you like Wes Anderson. But I those feel like art to me and I don't mean to sound pretentious but like I can experience them in, in a different way than I can just like regular tv or other forms of tv I guess I'm, I'm not a tv person so all this language please take with a grain of salt I don't mean to be pretentious in any way but Wes Anderson recently put out a movie he's a director uh recently put out the movie Asteroid City which I really love um so I really enjoy those movies. Uh, he's got some series on Netflix too. Uh, they're just really like, yeah, I don't know. There's something about them that, that is, that I really like. Also, um, one more thing that I'm rewatching is the show Fleabag, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, hilarious show. Love that show. Um, so that's what I'm watching and reading. Again, my book list is super tall. So a, a couple other things that I'm reading, I'm reading, um, the, a lot of poetry these days. So I was gifted um, the poetry book, the collection of poems, I guess, called Praying Naked by Katie Condon. That was a really interesting, um, really interesting book. So I'm actually going to read what she writes on her website about this. Because uh, I think it's just so interesting based on the conversation we've had. Um, so Katie on her website writes, Through language, both reverent and reckless, Katie Condon's debut collection renders the body a hymn. Praying naked is Eden in the midst of the fall, the meat of the apple, sweet as sex. In this collection, God is a hopeless and dangerous flirt. 
Mothers die and are resurrected, and disappointing lovers run like hell for the margins. So there, there's just so much in here related to spirituality and being a woman and life that I really love. So that is Praying Naked by Katie Condon. Again, I will link that in the show notes. I'm just writing these things down so I don't forget to link them. I'm also um, reading the collection of Mary Oliver poems called Devotions, which is a really thick collection of poems from many of her different works throughout the years. I'm also reading um, John Rodell's collection of poems, Remedy. Um, So really been leaning into poetry, really been kind of taking time to read, which has been lovely. Um, I'll link all that in the show notes. And so finally, I'm going to end this podcast with a little preview into what season two is going to look like. So season two of the podcast is all about um, healing from high control religion. And something new that I'm doing on the upcoming season is asking 10 rapid fire questions to every guest on the show. And I'm going to take a moment today to answer these 10 questions for myself. Um, It is probably like cheating a bit because I chose the questions, (laughs) but I didn't choose them with the intention that I'd answer them. I just thought that could be a fun way to end this episode. All right. So rapid fire questions, meaning I'm not going to give a lot of context, just going to answer. Number one, what song would be the background music for your life today? Oof, today I almost cried listening to a Noah Khan song. I can't remember the title of it, but Noah Khan in general, he's from Vermont. I'm from Vermont. We actually grew up in really similar um, locations in Vermont, born in the same hospital, same area. His music's just been hitting me like super deeply recently. So that's the background music. Um, pretty much the whole album stick season. Number two, what is the weirdest food combination you enjoy? Mm, Another Vermont thing, I think it's a Vermont thing, is apple pie and cheddar cheese. That's a great combination. If you've never had it, that is what we do in my family for holidays. Apple pie and cheddar cheese and ice cream. Um, Number three, if you had to get a tattoo today, what would you get? Oof. Well, I have a lot of tattoos, as many of you probably know. And I'm really looking forward to my next tattoo, which is going to be a little lady um, cowgirl smoking a cigarette because I just think it's fun and cool. And that is what I would get today if I could. When was the last time you laughed so hard that you cried? Oof. Um, the, the times that I laugh so hard I can cry, I don't even really remember what I'm laughing about. But I remember it was with just a couple of close friends. I was keeling over on the floor. This was probably a few weeks ago at a, at a party, a little small get together. And I just laughed to the point of like, things weren't actually funny anymore. I just couldn't stop laughing. So laughter medicine. What is one item on your bucket list? Hmm. I want to own a tiny home. That is something on my bucket list. Next question. What is one thing you're reading or watching right now? I just answered this super thoroughly, but one other thing I didn't mention that I'm reading right now is A Return to Love by Marianne Williamson, um, which is causing me to do a lot of deep thinking because I don't agree with everything in it. Next question. What is something that strangers often incorrectly assume 
about you. So when I ask people, I, I have a degree in music before my therapy career. I had a, I got a bachelor's degree in music and people often assume that like I play the flute or the clarinet. My instrument is the trumpet and people are often surprised by that. What emoji do you use the most? Next question. What emoji do you use the most? My favorite emoji is the monkey covering his face. And I think I probably use that one the most. What is your favorite scent? You know that smell of a dog, their paws, they smell like Fritos. Ugh, I don't even like Fritos, but I love the smell of my dog and her paws. They smell like Fritos. And last question, what is your favorite place on the planet? Mm. The first thing that comes to mind is not a place that exists anymore. Well, it exists, but not in the way that I remember it. Um, but on, so my grandparents have a farm in Vermont where I grew up and there used to be two huge willow trees on the farm and I love sitting under them. I have very vivid memories of sitting under the willow trees. The willow trees have since been cut down very sadly. Um, but that is a place that's very alive in my memory and probably one of my favorite places on the planet. All right, that's it for the rapid fire questions. That's it for the ask me anything. I appreciate you if you listened all the way to the end of this. If you like the podcast, please rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts. That would mean the world to me. Two more episodes in season one. Rachel Duval is on the podcast next week. And then after that, I chat with Emily and Stephanie from Cycle Chats. So keep an eye out for those two podcasts and coming soon more info about season two, which I'm psyched about. Great guests planned, great conversations planned. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Take care. Stay well. This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod, and you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy or my website, carriefillion.com. Take care and stay well.